Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Glad you're here. I want to welcome everyone here in the sanctuary at the Fort Worth campus, everyone down in Converge, also everyone at the West Campus, the South Campus, the Hive, and everyone who's streaming online, including my son and my daughter-in-law, my two grandchildren in Maryland, my daughter in Atlanta, and my wife, who's in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, she's over there and informed me yesterday that she's staying a week longer, much to my chagrin. But I'm glad she's able to stream. She's eight hours later, and I think Ethiopia is five years earlier. They're, no, literally, they're on a different calendar, so when you go there, you're younger. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to continue our series called Undivided from the book of 1 Corinthians. But before we unpack these 13 verses found in chapter 5, I want to share something with you. When you study, read, interpret, and apply Scripture, there's really three keys to doing it rightly and well. And the first key is context. Always remember the context. The second key is context. And the third key is, yes, context. It's so important that when we study the Scriptures that we study them within their context. So in other words, we don't take a single verse and lift it out of its chapter and then try to interpret it and apply it to our lives without knowing the rest of that chapter. We don't take a chapter and lift it out of the book. We don't take the book and lift it out of the Bible. When we do that, we run the risk of misapplying, misinterpreting, misinterpreting the passage and the intent of the original author and that of the Holy Spirit. So as we dig into these verses, I want to remember the context. Now, for the last four weeks, we've been unpacking this letter, which was written by Paul to the church in Corinth. It's important for us to remember that he's writing to a congregation. This is not a letter written to an individual. And one of the things we risk when reading the letters of Paul, particularly, is we, we make them all about us. Well, really, all about me. What's Paul telling me? But this is a letter written to a church made up primarily of Gentiles who have converted to Christianity out of pagan religions, marked by immorality, marked by idolatry, and now they're part of the body of Christ. And he's writing to this congregation, and we already know that they've got some issues. They've got some problems going on, and he's addressed those. We know in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, you're divided, you're quarreling, you're bickering with one another. And the sad part is, is that quarreling and bickering has to do with spiritual matters. There's almost a cult of personality that has creeped into the church where some are saying, well, I'm a follower of Paul. Some say, I'm a follower of Peter. I'm a follower of Apollos. And some are so proud that say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And it's begun to create this atmosphere in the church where they're divided and they're bickering and quarreling and, and really bragging about their spirituality, superior spirituality. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 Paul says, you should be spiritual people, but you're really living like natural people. You're living in the flesh. You're living out your old nature rather than in your new nature. And you have the spirit living within you, but you lack discernment. You're making some very unwise decision and choices. In chapter 3, verse 1, he basically says, you're like babies. You're like infants in Christ. When you should be on the meat of the word, I have to keep feeding you milk. You're not growing. 
Yes, you're a church. Yes, you're made up of believers, but you're not where you should be. Then in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, you're living out of the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. One of the things that's going to become clear is that they're bragging about their own wisdom, that we are wise, and yet he says, you're really not. You're not exhibiting the wisdom you, you should because you're making poor judgments and choices as a fellowship. And then in chapter 4, verses 6 and 18, he describes them as arrogant and puffed up. And that's not a compliment. You're arrogant, you're puffed up, and he's going to use that same term, terminology in chapter 5. And then finally, in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, you're all talk, no action. He actually says you lack power. You're not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're living in the power of your own sinful flesh. See, they're puffed up with pride, but it's a particular kind of pride. And I want you to listen carefully what he's talking about, because it can also happen right here within the walls in the community of Christ Chapel. They're a church, church divided. They're characterized by spiritual pride, spiritual pride. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. In other words, without us, Paul, the apostle, Peter, the apostle, Apollos, the teacher, without us, you've already become rich. You've already become wise. You're like kings. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. You think you already have everything you need. You think you're already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. See, he's, he's telling them that you really think you've moved beyond the need for teachers, that you somehow have arrived. These people, to put it bluntly, were spiritual elitists. They really thought they had made it. And yet, that overinflated sense of spiritual worth had blinded them. They were even questioning the capability of the Apostle Paul, that, that we really don't need your help anymore. We know you helped start this church, but we can do just fine without you now. And Paul has already had to confront them about this overinflated sense of spiritual superiority. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if, if you did not receive it? In other words, your salvation was a gift from God. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. You didn't deserve it. it. It was given to you. Your sanctification, your growth in Christ's likeness is not up to you. It's been done for you through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and yet you act as if everything about you, you have done. See, Paul is not happy. And he shouldn't be because he helped start this church and he cares deeply about their spiritual well-being. And they're not the only ones who had this problem. He, he said virtually the same thing to the believers in Rome. In, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, I give each of you this warning. And please, this morning, would you hear this as if he's speaking directly to us? Not you, us as a fellowship. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. 
You don't measure yourself. You don't measure this congregation based on what you think, how you think we're doing. You measure it based on God's criteria. And by the faith, Paul says, that he has given you, even your faith was a gift from God. So these people had no reason to boast, but they are. And they're so arrogant, they're so prideful that they've become blinded, blinded by their pride. It's interesting to note that Paul referred to himself as the chief of all sinners, the Apostle Paul. He said, I'm the chief of all sinners, but these people believed that they were the best of all believers. They really thought they were the cream of the crop. They were the top tier. And they were arrogantly puffed up by this attitude. And it had blinded them to the true nature of their church's spiritual state. They didn't know what was really going on. So let's look at chapter 5 and let's unpack what Paul is saying about this church, this congregation made up of believers. Look at verse 1. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? You see, spiritual pride eventually makes outward piety a higher priority than inner purity. When you begin to think that you've somehow arrived as an individual Christian or as a congregation, and you look around and, <clears throat> excuse me, and think that, man, we're a great church, we're a good church, we're a blessed church, you run the risk of measuring yourself by the wrong standard and losing sight of that what God cares about is what's going on inside, inner purity. See, Paul breaks some really bad news to this congregation. He basically says, the news is out. It's the talk of the town. It's the talk of Corinth. In spite of all your piety, your, your spirituality, you've got impurity in the camp. You've got sin in the camp. He says, you've got sexual immorality going on inside your fellowship. And the word he uses in the Greek is pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. In the, Greeks, in the Greek language, that word was usually associated with prostitution, but the Jews had adapted it and adopted it to mean any kind of sexual sin whatsoever. See, Paul's telling them, you've got sexual sin, sexual immorality going on in your midst, and in spite of the fact that they thought that they were spiritually superior, they've got a landmine about to explode, and they're blind to it. They don't see it. They're not aware of it. One of their members, and I believe a member in good standing, is having an immoral relationship with his stepmother. That's what the context tells us. It's not his biological mother, it's his father's wife. And he's having a relationship with her. Either his father has died and he's now married to or having an ongoing sexual relationship with this woman, or his father's alive and he's having an adulterous affair with this woman. Now, we're not told his name, the woman is hardly mentioned, which, which leads us to believe she wasn't a member of the church, but he is. And he's evidently regularly attending their gatherings. There's a problem. And he says this problem is so egregious that it's not even accepted among the Gentiles. Look at what he says in verse 1. 
It's a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. Even they don't approve of this kind of behavior. But yet you, the body of Christ, seem to be perfectly okay with it because you've not dealt with it. You're letting it go on and you've refused to deal with it. You see, spiritual pride leads eventually to apathy and complacency. You get so comfortable and so puffed up with how you think you're doing spiritually that you no longer see the sin in your own life and therefore you don't see the sin around you. He says, you're arrogant. You're so arrogant, you're blind. You're too proud to see the sin in your midst and the damage that it's doing. They had become morally lazy, overly tolerant. And I don't think this is the only problem. This is the sad part of this whole passage to me. If we're not careful, we so focus on this one man's sin that we forget that there's other issues going on in this church. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, pornea, greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Don't even eat with such a one. This guy's not the only problem they've got. He's the most egregious one, but they've got other issues going on. And you, you've got to keep in mind when Paul refers to these sins, these, these sinful behaviors, these are repeated behaviors and they're unrepentant. They're ongoing. They're habitual. These are people who are living like this continually with no regret, no remorse, and no sign of repentance. He brings it back up in chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, there is no place in the kingdom of God for this kind of behavior. No place. It's unacceptable. It should not be tolerated. But they've been so busy arguing and debating about their super spirituality that they don't even recognize it anymore. They've become anesthetized. They, they, they don't even know that this kind of stuff is going on. Or if they know, they've somehow excused it as okay. And everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. It just seems that in this church that they had gotten to a point where they believed they're okay. And they had forgotten to look and see what's going on. See, spiritual pride will ultimately result in moral compromise. What's interesting is that they had taken some of the teachings of Paul and Peter and really the teachings of Christ and they had misinterpreted and misapplied them. Teachings about grace teachings about freedom in Christ. And Paul later on raises two major misconceptions this fellowship had. The first one is found in chapter 6, verse 12. Paul writes, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. And he puts it in quotes. This was a common theme in that church. That they're basically walking around and going, hey, I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. And Paul says, yeah, but not everything's good for you. And it's most certainly not good for the congregation. Yes, there are certain things you're free to do, but go back and look at that list. You're not free to be an idolater. You're not free to be a drunkard. You're not free to be greedy. You're not free to have sex with your 
father's wife. You're not free to do those things. And they had taken freedom in Christ and they had misinterpreted and misapplied it. 1 Corinthians 6, 8, 1, he says, yes, we know that we have all knowledge. Again, in quotes. You guys are walking around bragging about your super superior spiritual knowledge. We all have knowledge. They're basically saying, hey, Paul, we have just as much knowledge as you do. We have the same Holy Spirit you have. We don't need you anymore. We don't need Peter. We don't need Apollos. We, we have arrived. And he goes on and says, yes, but while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers really doesn't know very much at all. You think you're wise, but you're a fool. You think you know everything, but you really don't. Your arrogance reveals your ignorance. You see, they had created unknowingly a, a, an atmosphere, a spiritual autonomy, self-rule, self-determination. We all get to decide what's best for each other, for myself. You do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And it had created the opportunity and the atmosphere for a man like this to do what he was doing without ever getting called out about it. See, freedom in Christ had been turned into license, and license always results eventually in licentiousness. Now, that's an old-fashioned word, and we don't use it much anymore, but it is so appropriate for this context. It simply means a throwing off of sexual restraint. Doing what you feel like doing, doing what you feel like is right, it's, it's a wanton disregard or transgression of God's law because you think you know better. These people had become overly tolerant and accommodating to sinful behavior in the church. So Paul calls them out. Look at the second half of verse 2. He says, let him who has done this be removed. Get him out. Get him out from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. In other words, I'm not there physically, but guess what? You've got my letter, you have my thoughts, so I'm just as good as there in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What in the world is Paul talking about? I mean, this is a tough passage anyway you look at it, right? And there's three reactions in this room right now. There's, whoa, that's rough. There's no, 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 that's, that's, that's unfair. And then there's, yes, let him have it. I'll be the one to kick him out. Let me pick him up and physically take him out the door. See, there's, we look at this passage, and if we're not careful, we, we get so excited about what we read or so impacted by what we read that we miss the point. See, spiritual pride requires drastic measures. Yes, this man is the focus of those verses, and he's being, they're being told to get him out of your fellowship, but there's so much more going on. This man is in their fellowship because he's just as arrogant and prideful as they are. He thinks he's okay doing what he's doing. His pride and arrogance has allowed him to have this relationship without any remorse, without any regret, and he's proudly practicing his sinful behavior and doesn't seem to care. And nobody else seems to care either. 
So what does Paul demand? He demands that he be removed. If he's going to act like a non-believer, let him go live among non-believers because there's no place for him here. Remember, habitual, repeated, unrepentant sin. There's no place for that in the church. Where did Paul get this idea? Did he just make it up? Is he some type A driven personality? No, he got it directly from the lips of Jesus himself. Over in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, we we have a passage from which we get our idea for church discipline. And this church does practice church discipline. You need to know that. And on the back of your sermon notes, there's an outline of the steps that we believe Jesus taught that we are to take when we need to practice church discipline. We have not done it often. We don't ever do it joyfully, but we do it obediently because we get it from Jesus himself. But listen to what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him like a non-believer. If he wants to live like one, treat him like one. See, that's where Paul's gotten the idea for this. And really what he's doing is he's saying, you guys have not done this, and therefore now he needs to be removed. You've never truly confronted him, or if you have, he has refused to repent, so he needs to be out. He needs to be removed. And he says, turn him over to Satan. Now, is Paul saying, revoke his Christian card? Is he saying, send him to hell? No, he's basically saying, put him out in the domain of Satan. See, the world is the domain of Satan. The church is the kingdom of God, the domain of God. This is a place where we are to live differently and distinctively. And he says, if he doesn't want to live by these standards, he needs to go out into the world and live in that context. You know, Paul used these same words when he referred to what God does to those who have been had revealed to them God's glory and goodness through creation, and yet they've decided to worship creation rather than the creator. In Romans 1.23, Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up, he turned them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. See, that's exactly what Paul's talking about in this passage. Turn him over. If he wants to live like the world, let him go live among the world. He no longer gets to enjoy the comfort, the safety, the protection of the body of Christ if he refuses to live according to the standards of the body of Christ. He's forfeited that right. Until, Paul says, he suffers the destruction of his his flesh. Again, what is that talking about? It's really talking about until he gives up his passions and desires to do what fulfills this body to give in to his sexual desires, to give in to what he thinks is right until he dies to those and is willing to repent and return and be reconciled. You're to send him out of the church. He's got to give up those fleshly urges. See, sexual pride can quickly become pervasive. Paul knew the danger of leaving these things undetected and undealt with because it can grow like a cancer. Look at what he says in verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Paul's using terminology that's related to the Passover. And before you, the Jews took the Passover, they had to get all the leaven, the yeast, out of their home because it represented sin. They were to remove sin from their midst and then take the Passover. And he goes on and says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, the Passover, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, something should be different. He's addressing their pride. He's addressing this man's particular sexual sin. But he's really dealing with, you're going back to your old ways, your old habits, the old leaven of greed, malice, and it's beginning to permeate the church. See, that should have been gotten rid of. But a false sense of spiritual superiority had allowed it to creep back in and delude them and deceive them, thinking that we're actually better than we truly are. And it can happen to any fellowship at any time. Those old behaviors that creep back in. And, and Paul has, has clearly communicated to them over and over again, and he's going to do so again in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that you are to be different. Listen to what he says. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes, practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live in habitual, perpetual, unrepentant sin will not be in the kingdom. They shouldn't be in the church and they won't be in the future kingdom of God. But listen to what he says. Some of you were once like that. You were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by the calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. You have been changed. You have been redeemed. You have the Spirit of God living within you. You are cleansed. You no longer have to live by the old leaven. See, he's not just talking about this one guy. And I think sometimes we make it all about this one unnamed individual. But guess what? If they got rid of that one guy, which Paul told them to do, if they did it, would it fix the problem in this church? If we got rid of everybody in this room who commits sin, we wouldn't have a church. This is not about you and I looking around the room going, yeah. That guy needs to go because he didn't live up to my standard. She obviously needs to go. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an atmosphere that creates a tolerance for sin. And it begins with spiritual pride. See, their new lives were to be characterized by true righteousness, not a self-righteousness, a puffed-up prideful righteousness, but the true righteousness that we receive that is imputed to us by Jesus Christ. They were to live holy, set-apart lives, distinctively different from anyone around them, and yet they were more like the world than they were like Christ. And see, they were also to have a mutual concern for the spiritual well-being of one another, 
do you realize that you are part of the body of Christ and that that person sitting next to you, whether you know them or not, you have a responsibility for? That how they live their life, as Cody said last week, everything we do matters. But everything that person next to you matters, everything they do matters, and you should care about their spiritual well-being. But these people had lost sight of that. And their spiritual pride had prohibited corporate accountability. See, what happens is you begin to think that you're okay, I'm good, I've arrived, and that's all you get concerned about. And you forget to look at the sin in your own life and you forget to see the sin that's taking place around you. Look at what he says in verses 9 through 13 as he wraps this up. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now he's referring to a letter that he wrote sometime earlier that we no longer have a copy of. And they had misconstrued what he wrote. And they thought he was saying, well, don't, don't hang around with people outside who are sexually immoral. Don't hang out with the lost that, that are out there in the world. They were practicing isolationism. They had formed a little holy huddle. But he goes on and says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. In other words, if you're going to avoid every sinful person out in the world, you will have to physically leave this planet. You can't. But listen to what he says. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, idolatry. He's a reviler, a drunkard, a swindler. Don't even eat with this person. See, he's bringing the focus onto the body of Christ. And then he adds this. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? You and I spend far too much time judging the world when we need to be judging one another. Awaken, we're not to judge. Don't judge lest you be judged. One of the most misinterpreted verses in the entire Bible. Listen to what Paul says. God judges those outside. You can leave them up to him. He's got it taken care of. But it is not, is it not for those inside the church whom you are to judge? To look into their lives and go, are you living up to God's standards? Are you living the way you were created to live? See, he says, purge the evil person from among you. And again, is he saying, kick everybody out of the church who has a sin problem? I don't think so, or you don't have a church. But he is saying, have enough care and concern to look into and speak into the sin you see in your midst. He's not telling you to holy huddle. He's not telling you to isolate yourself from the world he wants you to understand that you have a corporate responsibility to care for each other's spiritual health and well-being. And not based on your own criteria. This is key. It's not you deciding that everybody has to live up to your particular spiritual standard. No, it's always by God's standard, not yours, not mine. You see, we have a God-given responsibility to hold one another accountable. Let me say that again. I want to bring this to Christ Chapel. I want to speak to us. I want you to hear this really clearly, that you and I have a corporate responsibility, a God-given mandate to hold one another accountable. So he says, it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. It's your responsibility. 
So I'll close with this. What's your role in all of this? What's my role? How do we protect the spiritual health of Christ Chapel? But guess, guess what? We desperately need to. Whether you're in Parker County, Johnson County, Tarrant County, whether you're streaming online, you need to care about the spiritual well-being and the integrity of this church. So how do you do that? Four things. Four very simple but very difficult things. First, live with a spirit of humility. James writes, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As soon as you find yourself getting superior, spiritually superior and having these boastful ideas that I've somehow arrived or I'm somehow better than that person, you're, in, you're on dangerous ground. See, we're told to be humble. God gives grace to the humble. We're always to remember that without him, we're nothing. Without his son, Jesus Christ, death on the cross, we are nothing. Without his Holy Spirit, we're nothing. We have no wisdom. We have no strength. We have no spirituality apart from God. So remain humble. Secondly, treat sin seriously. Paul told the Ephesians, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He's not talking about out there in the world, guys. Let, 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 me, let me give you some advice. And I need to hear this just as much as you do. Quit worrying about the world. Quit pointing your finger at the world and start looking around our fellowship and take sin in the camp seriously. Because what you and I do matters. Third, practice loving accountability. Listen to what Jesus said. If your brother sins, rebuke him lovingly. If he repents, Forgive him lovingly. I guarantee that Paul's desire, his prayer, his hope is that this man, once he's cast out, will repent and return and be reconciled. And he wants that congregation to welcome him with open arms. See, we got to do it with love. We've got to practice accountability always with love. Let everything you do be done in love. And then finally, protect the church's integrity. Paul told the Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. See, if we would walk the way we're supposed to walk, there would be little need for church discipline. But we all know this, right? We all get into the weeds on occasion. We all get off the path of righteousness. And when we do, we need loving brothers and sisters to speak into our life and say, hey, I need, you, I need to hold you accountable because I love you. And I know what you fear is when you point your finger at someone else, they're going to point their finger back at you and say, yeah, well, you got some logs in your own eye. And you probably do. So when you hold someone accountable, humbly, lovingly, be willing to have them hold you accountable. Because we all need it. If we want to protect the church's integrity. So I'm going to close with a call to reject spiritual pride, and it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. And I want you to listen carefully what he says. This is found in the book of Revelation, recorded by the apostle John. It's in those, the second and third chapter where Jesus speaks to those seven churches, and this is what he has to say to Laodicea. Again, another congregation, a body of believers, but listen to what he says. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. Sound familiar? Sounds a whole lot like Corinth. And you don't realize that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
See, you're so blinded by your pride that you don't understand your true condition and that you still need Jesus. And that's why he says, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. He's essentially saying, if you want what is of value, not wood, hay, and stumble, as Cody addressed last week, if you want those things that will really last, come to me. Then you will be rich, truly rich. He goes on and says, also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness. Don't cover yourself with the filthy rags of self-righteousness. And then he adds, an ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. Get your eyes open so that you'll be able to see what's going on in your own life and in the lives of those around you whom you call brothers and sisters. And listen to what he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. If Jesus loves me enough and he loves you enough to correct and discipline you and we are to love as Christ loved, we should do the same thing. I love you enough that I will correct and discipline you. And it's everyone's role, not just the leadership, not just the pastors. And then he ends with, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. Be diligent. Turn from your, indif your indifference. Turn from your pride. Turn from your arrogance. Turn to him. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we come to you and we thank you for Jesus Christ, your son. We thank you for your word that is powerful. It's, it's like a sword that cuts to the quick. It is life-changing. It teaches us. It convicts us. It comforts us at times. But Father, this is a convicting message, and I pray that it would speak into every heart in this room that we would truly love one another as you love us, that Father, we would take sin seriously, and that we would hold each other accountable lovingly, that we would live humbly and that together we would protect the integrity of this body called Christ Chapel so that we might truly be salt and light and there would be no reason for the world to gossip about what's going on in our midst. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus Christ, for salvation, and for the very fact that we can accomplish this because of him. And we pray this in his name, amen.